Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have taught us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O Lord. And so we come to you this morning hungry, asking that you would feed us by your word, that you would instruct us in your holy ways and the glories and the grace of your gospel. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, we'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. You can find this in the Pew Bibles on page 984. So we're looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Since we're starting a bit in the middle of a paragraph, I'll begin reading in verse Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. If you're under attack, what is the best way to defend yourself? I'm sure you've heard the comment saying the best defense is a good offense. You especially hear this saying in sports, and it actually works quite well in many sports. If you're always on the attack and you're attacking well, then the other team will be on defense and you'll never actually need to defend yourself. And that works really well when there's one clear goal and there's one opponent or one team standing in the way of that goal. But in real life, things aren't always so simple. Here, as Paul is writing to the Colossians and he's equipping them to defend themselves against these false teachers who want to take them captive, he doesn't trust this sort of tactic of only attacking being always on the offense against false teachers. Yes, he does show that their teaching is based on empty deceit, on mere human tradition, and he says it's not according to Christ, and he will go on to poke more holes in what they're saying. But this is not his primary defense against them. Paul has a different strategy as he's writing to the Colossians. Rather, the strongest defense against false teaching 
is true Christian teaching. He wants to get the Colossians rooted and grounded and firmly established in Christ and in all that they have received in him. And the wonderful thing about this strategy is that it will not only defend against this current set of false teachers, but against any others that will come along. Because unlike in a sports match, in real life, there's not always just one opponent. In fact, as we've been working through this section, I've wished that our situation today was as simple as the one in Colossae, with just one set of false teachers, just one false philosophy, that I could simply expose that one false thing out there, and we'd be home free. But the challenge today is we are surrounded by so many different false religions, anti-Christian movements and ideas, that I can hardly begin to comment them on them all and all the errors out there in one sermon or two sermons. And that's why the best defense is not necessarily to attack every falsehood that comes our way, but to be absolutely secure in your faith in Christ so that nothing can shake you and nothing can lead you astray. Furthermore, The goal of the Christian life isn't just to defeat opponents, but it's to live in Christ, to follow him, to serve, and to glorify him. And so in our passage this morning, Paul focuses on one central idea of our vital union with Christ. And this is a theme, it's already come up, it's already been introduced in this letter, it's come up a few times, but it really shines out with greater clarity here. And yet, as central as this teaching of union with Christ is here in our passage, it could be easy to miss it. Because Paul doesn't actually use the words union with Christ. Instead, what we see is that as Paul details all the wonderful things that Christ does for us, he repeats over and over how we receive all these things in Christ and with Christ. In other words, through this spiritual union with Christ. I said we've already seen this theme introduced, so let's consider how. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul spoke of the riches of the glory of the mystery that has been revealed, and what was it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then last time we saw the very first command in the letter? What was it? To walk in Christ. To live out the fact that we have been united to Christ by faith. And then we closed last, closed last time with the glorious truth that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled In Christ, those key words again, that is, you have received all spiritual fullness through this union with Christ. Now, last time I just began to scratch the surface of what that spiritual fullness consists of. And I said it's every spiritual blessing in Christ. But now as we continue reading our passage this morning, Paul begins to detail, to flesh out some of the details of what is that fullness that we have in Christ. So this morning we'll look at how because you have been united to Christ through faith, 
You have died, you have been buried, you have been raised to new life in him. And we'll see some of the life-changing impact that has, the life-changing implications of this. Then secondly, we'll look at how Paul then applies this transition from death to life in another direction. How, in Christ, all your sins have been forgiven. And third and finally, we'll see how you are set free in Christ's triumph over evil powers. And all these blessings are received through your union with Christ. So let's begin this morning by seeing that you have died, you have been buried, you have been raised in union with Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Let's read those verses again. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, If you notice, but these are two very dense verses, a lot packed into one long, complex sentence. So we'll need to unpack this carefully, phrase by phrase. So first I want you to notice, to see that the main independent verb is you were circumcised. And everything else is describing how this is done. The first thing to notice is this was done in Christ. Everything in this section is in Christ through union with Christ. And then Paul says at the end of verse 12 that this is through faith in the powerful working of God. And this is also essential to it all. Now, technically, Paul here is talking about being raised with Christ, but this necessity of faith, it applies to the whole section. Going back to the very beginning of verse 11, back to you were circumcised. There is no union with Christ without faith in Christ. You must trust in Christ. It's through faith that you receive him and you are united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's now consider this main verb. You are circumcised. What does that mean? Why does Paul even bring this up? Why is he talking about circumcision here? It's not certain, but it's likely that the false teachers are encouraging, perhaps even requiring circumcision of this predominantly Gentile and therefore uncircumcised church. Paul is countering by saying, you have already received this in Christ. Now to understand this fully, we need to go back to the Old Testament and understand, well, what is circumcision? Circumcision was a ritual sign that God had given to Abraham as part of his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. In circumcision, a small part of the flesh is cut away, but the key is the symbolism. It symbolizes our natural sinful state, our need for our sin to be dealt with by God. And by cutting that flesh away, God is demonstrating that he will take away our sin. He will wash it away by our putting our faith in him. But the symbolism, it goes even deeper. This cutting away of the flesh, it points to a need for a transformed heart. What scripture calls the circumcision of the heart. And you see, that's exactly what Paul is picking up on here. As he says, not that you've received a physical circumcision, but he says that in Christ you have received 
this deeper significance of circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. That is, you have received this circumcision of the heart. And this is the very thing that God had promised his people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. It was what Paul said was the essence of circumcision, what was essential to be a true believer in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And now Paul here is saying, you have received this true spiritual heart circumcision in Christ. Then he says, he, he tells us exactly how this happened. He says, you received it by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And these two phrases, they're actually quite difficult to interpret, and scholars debate whether they refer primarily to Christ and his body and his circumcision or to the believer. But here I'll present the view, which I think is, is preferable, is that they refer primarily to Christ and then secondarily to you, believer, as you are united to Christ. So what that means is that Paul is speaking here of the putting off of Christ's body of flesh when he died on the cross, when he laid down his life for you. Paul uses the same phrase, the body of flesh, to refer to Christ's death on the cross back in chapter 1, Verse 22, that's the only other place in Scripture where this, this exact phrase, body of flesh, is used. And then when he speaks of the circumcision of Christ, that's not referring to his circumcision when he was eight days old, but rather Paul is referring to the cross itself. The great sacrifice where not just a small portion of Christ's flesh was cut off, but his whole body was removed. His blood was shed. He was completely cut off from the Father to pay the penalty for your sins. So Paul here, he is primarily speaking of what Christ has done. But because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, He's saying you have died with Christ on the cross and you receive this hard circumcision made without hands in which your old nature is crucified with him. And that means that the power of sin is broken in you. This is confirmed in Romans 6, 6-7, passage we read earlier. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now previously, when you were dead in your sin, you could not not sin. You were unable to do anything but obey your master, which was sin. And here he's saying, in Christ... You are set free. Hallelujah. The power of sin is broken. And this is described here as a circumcision of a heart. 
A new heart is given to you, a heart not of stone, but a heart of flesh. And this is through your union with Christ in his death. But if that's not glorious enough, Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going in verse 12 as he writes, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you've not only died with Christ, a circumcision of the heart, you've been buried with him and then raised to new life. Now you consider Christ's burial, what's going on there? His time in the grave, it's a confirmation that he has truly died. And the fact that you were buried with him, it's a confirmation that you have truly died to your old sinful nature with him. But then comes the resurrection, the new life with Christ. Paul speaks of it this way in the parallel text which we read in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So not only have you died to your old slave master sin, but in rising with Christ, you rise to live a new life of obedience to him in righteousness. And so in all this, you see that you are completely transformed. And we know that this transformation is partial in this life. Indwelling sin remains in your flesh. And that's why in Romans 6, as we read on, Paul goes on and he says, don't give in to sin, your old slave master. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Since you've been set free from sin, now walk in this newness of life. Walk in obedience to Christ. Walk in righteousness. Or as we said, saw last time, his first command in Colossians, walk in Christ. This is the new life, the resurrection life you have in him. Now all this, we see Paul connects to baptism. He does this both in Colossians and in the parallel in Romans. And now we need to ask, what is the connection? Now in our main Colossians text, baptism is part of this series of adverbs. It's describing how, how you were circumcised, how you died, how you were buried, how you were raised with Christ. And so Paul is saying that in the sign and seal of baptism, you receive all this, all this wonderful, all these things you receive in Christ, you see them in baptism. Now, of course, you also see that this is through faith, as I emphasized earlier, and that faith may come before or it may come after the actual performance of the baptism itself. But either way, baptism points to and it confirms God's promise that those who put their faith in Christ receive all this in him. Now, seeing all this, it helps you to understand why these verses are considered one of the key texts for establishing that baptism replaces the rite of circumcision in the new covenant. Once Christ, who is the substance, the reality has arrived, the shadows which pointed forward to him pass away. And since Christ's blood is shed in a final once-for-all sacrifice, with blood never to again be shed for God, the bloody ritual of circumcision, which pointed forward to Christ, is now replaced by 
the, bloody, the bloodless ritual of washing with the waters of baptism. We see here that baptism, it points to the same spiritual truths which circumcision pointed forward to. And in fact, now it demonstrates these things with greater force now that Christ has come. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, saying to you this morning, behold, all that you have received in union with Christ, you have died, you have been buried, you have been raised with him. And this transforms your life. And all this, it is symbolized to you, it is confirmed for you in the sacrament of baptism. And that brings us then to our second result of this union with Christ, that your sins are forgiven. Reading verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now here in this verse, Paul again uses this language of life and death. But here he's using it in a slightly different way. He uses it first to establish both the absolute necessity of and the great wonder of the forgiveness that we receive in Christ. First, he describes our state before Christ as spiritual death. And he says this spiritual death, it's caused by your trespasses, by the actual sins that you have committed and your state of being uncircumcised. Now here he's writing to Gentiles who were physically uncircumcised, but it's not, he's not just talking about physical uncircumcision. I think he primarily has in mind the, the spiritual significance of this uncircumcision, that they needed what circumcision points to, the circumcision of the heart. But the key thing to notice here is that Paul doesn't say, you were spiritually sick, you were spiritually wounded, because if that were the case, Perhaps you could recover in your own strength. Rather, he puts it in the most stark terms possible. He says you were dead in order to make clear that your situation was hopeless. You were incapable of doing any spiritual good, utterly incapable of saving yourself. A dead corpse cannot raise itself from the dead. It's only by the grace of God that he saves you and gives you new life. Both sides of this are even more strongly emphasized in the parallel passage in Ephesians 2. Both the depth of your hopelessness while you were dead in sin and the greatness of God's grace in salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What mercy God has shown to sinners like us who deserve no mercy. Even when we were dead, 
and helpless and completely unable to do anything. Then Paul highlights one more benefit of this union with Christ, this new resurrection life that we have in him. He says, having made us alive, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. And he illustrates how Christ does this in two ways. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that's the first illustration, and then secondly, this, he set aside nailing it to the cross. So the first illustration, it speaks of our sin in terms of a record of debt. Because God created you, you owe him your life, you owe him your obedience, you owe him everything you are. And every time you fail to keep his law, you fail to keep his righteous requirements, you are racking up a debt to him. And the picture is that of a a long list, a scroll that goes on and on and on, listing out all your offenses every time you've sinned against him, all that you owe. And it's an eternal debt that God's law demands, but which you could never pay. And yet, it says here, God has canceled it in Jesus Christ. Literally, he has blotted it all out. But then, as if that were not enough, he takes it one step further with the second illustration. In Roman times, when a criminal was sentenced to crucifixion, the list of his crimes The crimes for which he was convicted was nailed above his head. And then he was hung on the cross to pay for those crimes. You may recall, Jesus' great crime was nailed above his head. It read, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. But here Paul says that spiritually speaking, it was your debts that were nailed to his cross. And he paid the He paid the price in your place with his life so that your debts have been fully discharged. You have been forgiven. This is put so beautifully in Horatio Spafford's hymn, It is well with my soul, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And we need to let that truth sink down deep into our souls. Perhaps there's some sin in your past that still troubles you, that sometimes comes to your mind and you think, how can God forgive a sin so great, so dark, so filthy as this? And I would say to you, Take comfort, brother. Rest easy, sister. For that sin has been blotted out. It has been nailed to the cross along with all the others. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are united to him by faith. Then all your trespasses have been forgiven in him. And that means not an ounce of guilt remains. That is our great comfort. Third and finally, we see in this passage that you are set free. 
in Christ's triumph over evil powers. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is now the third time in this letter that Paul has mentioned the rulers and authorities. Chapter 1, verse 16, he wrote that Christ has created all things. And he says this includes all the orders of angelic beings, including rulers and authorities. And just last time, chapter 2, verse 10, he says that Christ is head over every ruler and authority. And that, of course, flows from the fact that Christ is divine and he created these rulers and authorities. But now as we come to verse 15, we see that Paul is using this, these terms specifically to refer to fallen angels, to evil demonic powers that Christ overcame in his sacrifice on the cross. And Paul says specifically he disarmed them. And the idea in this Greek verb is that he literally stripped them of their weapons and armor. He humiliates them. He leaves them powerless. And after this, he exposed them to public shame and triumphed over them in Christ. This is referring to the Roman practice in which a triumphant general would march through the streets in a victory parade. And he would lead behind him his defeated enemies who were in chains and who would, 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 would be led in utter humiliation. Now, if you imagine yourself watching such a parade, you would be seeing the enemies that you once feared, who have now been captured, stripped, and put to shame before you. And you would now know that they will never again pose a threat to you. Now, Christ accomplishes all this on the cross because all the powers of the devil and his forces were not able to thwart his victory over sin and death. And so Satan, though he still lives, is dealt a death blow on the cross. He is, this is the meaning of his title, Satan, he is the accuser. But because your sins have been forgiven, he has nothing left to accuse you of. And since you share in Christ's triumph, you have nothing to fear from the rulers and authorities. Now, it's true that Satan and his minions are still active, and the believer is called to be wary of the devil's schemes. You do not need to fear them. They have no authority over you because you are united to Christ, and we are more than conquerors in him. This morning we have seen several of the benefits that are found through our union with Christ, through faith in him. And while it's helpful to go on the attack, to know the empty deceit of the false teachers, the greatest defense against them comes from being secure in your union and communion with Christ. Since you have died to sin with Christ and been risen, you have been raised with him to new life. Your life is completely transformed. You now walk in this new resurrection life and are called to walk in obedience with him. Because he has forgiven all your sins and set you free from the tyranny of evil powers, you have strength and freedom in this life and eternal hope for the life to come. But all this is still only a portion of all the fullness that is received through union with Christ. John Murray is a theologian. He's not one for overstatement or for exaggeration. And nevertheless, this is what he writes concerning union with Christ. He writes, 
Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that has been secured and procured for them in the once for all accomplishment of redemption. All which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption. And all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. It is out of the measureless fullness of grace and truth, of wisdom and power, of goodness and love, of righteousness and faithfulness that resides in him that God's people draw for all their needs in this life and for the hope of the life to come. There is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. And so, end quote. And so to find strength, to resist those who seek to take you captive, to draw you away from Christ, rest in all the fullness that is found in your union and communion with Christ himself. And this union is something you receive through trusting in him. The new life that comes through the powerful working of God, that same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power through which God raises you spiritually and gives you this new life. I would just close by urging you, if you haven't done so, if you haven't taken this step, I urge you to do so today, to turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. For in him you will find not only forgiveness of your sins, but abundant life, life forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the gracious God who has had mercy upon us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, you gave us new life in Christ. Our salvation is all of grace, not by our works, not by our efforts, so all the glory and praise goes to you. We thank you that you have united us to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that our old self has died to him and we have been raised to newness of life. Help us, Father, to walk in this new resurrection life, to live always in a way pleasing to you as living sacrifices pouring out our lives for your glory. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.